Well, good morning, friends. My name is Matt, and I am a pastor here at the Prior Lake campus. And I know at the end of that video, you heard them say that if you're interested, contact Pastor Art. If you haven't heard, uh, Pastor Art had a heart attack this weekend uh, and was taken to the hospital where he had a stint put in. He is now home and doing very well. The doctor said everything went great, and he's recovering. Yeah. But if you're interested in a marriage mentor in the next couple of days, you may want to contact me. Let's give Art a a few days in order to recover here. Uh, And so shoot me an email or call me and we'll get that set up. Uh, Yeah, very thankful for the way that God's been at work bringing healing to Art over the course of this weekend in a very short period of time. Our sermon series that we've been doing here is called When God Says Jump. We're looking at the life of Abraham, and today we're going to be looking specifically at the idea of blessings. And before we jump into Genesis chapter 16, I'd like to just take a moment and have everyone silently give thanks to God for some of the blessings he's brought into your life. Would you just take a moment and give God thanks for blessings that he's brought into your life? There are all kinds of different blessings that we can receive in this life, aren't there? Uh, This weekend, I got to spend the weekend with a great group of guys at our men's retreat. And just being with those guys was a blessing. And then when I left the men's retreat, where did I go? I got to go to my home. And having a home, that's a blessing. Whether we're talking about a house or an apartment or a dorm, it doesn't matter. Having a home is a blessing. When I got home, my wife is gone for the weekend and she wasn't there. And her absence was a reminder of the daily blessing that she is in my life. And if you ask her, she would tell you, there's some days when Matt's a blessing in my life too. (laughs) I got to talk to a friend this week who had been offered a new job, a job that he's dreamed about having. A job is a great blessing. A job that you really enjoy is a great blessing. A job that provides, that's a great blessing too. I, maybe you heard me say I got to talk to a friend. A friend is a great blessing. A good friend is a great blessing in our life, isn't it? Absolutely it is. I told you my wife is gone and she's gone with my daughter. And my daughter has been sending me pictures of the area where they are around Seattle. Got a chance to talk to my son on the phone yesterday and their reminders of what tremendous blessings my kids are in my life. Remember the day that my daughter was born and holding her tiny little hand in the nursery and I was filled with all kinds of emotions I didn't even know I had. I was alternating, crying and laughing and crying and laughing. My newborn daughter had it more together emotionally than her dad did (laughs) because I just couldn't believe the blessing that had been given to me. We receive blessings of all different kinds in this life. And when we think about what our life is going to be like, the great big picture of what our life is going to look like, we imagine ourselves having some of those blessings at different stages along that path. 
When I think five years down the road, 15 years down the road, 30 years down the road, we imagine ourselves having some of those blessings at those various stages. But what happens when we arrive at the stage and those blessings aren't there? What happens when we come to a particular stage in life and we had always imagined that we would have these particular blessings at this stage and we're there and there's no sign of those blessings anywhere around? What do we do in that situation? That's the situation that Abram and Sarah find themselves in in Genesis chapter 16. They have always imagined themselves as parents, having a child. And here we are in Genesis chapter 16, and that has not happened. The chapter starts this way. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. For Sarai, this would be hard. She wants to be a mom. She wants to hold a baby of her own in her arms and pour out her love on that child as he or she grows up. She wants to be a mom. But even more than that, Her social standing in society at this time depended on her ability to provide a child for Abram. Ancient Middle Eastern expert uh, Kyle Vandertum says this about the family dynamic at this time. The woman who remained childless not only ran the risk of being disdained or worse, repudiated by her husband and in-laws, she also incurred the suspicion of indecent behavior. The gods surely have to have their reason for withholding children. Consequently, we safely assume that the newlywed, who as time elapsed perceived no sign pointing to pregnancy, was overcome by panic. Well, Sarai is past the point of panic. Her childbearing years are primarily behind her, and at this point, panic has turned into discouragement and even depression in her life. Why, God, why didn't you give me a child? And so this is hard for Sarai. It's a whole different kind of hard for Abram, isn't it? Because not only does Abram want a child in order to continue continue his name, to continue his lineage, to have someone to pass all that he owns on to, Abram wants a child because God promised him a child. Isn't this a challenge to Abram's faith? Years ago, God said, you're going to have a child. And that this child is going to be the doorway to offspring so numerous you can't even count them. And here he is years later, and how many children does Abram have? Zero. No doubt, Abram shared this promise with everybody around him. How many, how many people did Abram have in his household? We've seen over and over again, hundreds of people are a part of Abram's household, aren't they? And he's probably shared it with the neighbors around The people in his household, they come out of a background where they worshiped the gods of Egypt, the gods of Ur, the gods of Canaan. And Abram has been proclaiming to them over and over again, we worship the one true God. He is the one who blesses this house. And that blessing will be proven true because he is going to provide a son for me. And here we are years later, Abram having proclaimed this promise to everyone he knows And he sits here childless. God, what is going on? Why don't I have this promised child? What a challenge this must have been. Like Sarah and Abram, there are times where we look at our lives 
and we arrive in a certain place and we say, wait a minute, where are the blessings I always imagined that I would have at this stage? We look around and we see someone who has a great and deep friendship and we say, I I want one of those. I I always wanted to be married. I always wanted a child. Lord, look at them. They, They have financial plenty. When do I get that blessing? Lord, they're so well-liked. When do I get that blessing? There are all of these different blessings, and we look around at these blessings and we go, wait a minute, I thought I would have this by this stage. What's going on? Where are those blessings? And since we're Americans, when do we want the blessing? Now! We can all admit we're not a particularly patient people. I'm reminded of this every time I'm around slow internet and I keep hitting the enter key over and over and over again. Like that's going to speed things up somehow. Uh, One comedian writing about our impatience as a society, the struggles we have to wait, applied it particularly to airline travel. He says this, people come back from flights these days and they tell you their story. And it's a horror story. They say, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we got on the plane and they made us wait on the runway for 40 minutes. And I say, the comedian says, oh, really? And what happened next? Did you fly in the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Everybody on every airplane should stop whining and should be constantly screaming, wow, we're flying. We're sitting in a chair in the sky and we're flying. He continues on. Here's the thing. People get frustrated about delays on flights. Delays? Really? New York to California in five hours? It used to take 30 years to do that. And a bunch of you would die along the way and you might have to eat your family members. You can probably handle 40 minutes on the runway. In our culture, we're impatient. We're not great at waiting. And that's a problem because as we read the scriptures, God is regularly calling people into seasons of waiting. Waiting so that they will build their trust in him. Waiting so that they will continue to pray and grow their intimacy with him. He is constantly calling people into seasons of waiting. And when we have to wait on a blessing that we thought we would have at this point in our life, there is a a temptation that all of us face to cut corners. To cut corners and do things that are wrong or do things that are foolish in order to bring that blessing into our life. Okay, every time, every time we face a blessing that we thought we'd have and we don't have it at this point, we all face the temptation to cut corners and do things that are wrong or things that are foolish in order to bring that blessing into our life. And that's precisely what Sarai does here. And Sarai said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Ancient marriage documents from Canaan show that this was an acceptable practice within the society in Canaan. That you could, 
if you are a wife, give your servant over to your husband, that that servant would then become a second wife who could have children, and that those children would by law then be the wife's children. This was socially acceptable in Canaan. But it isn't God's plan for marriage. Let me say that again. It was socially acceptable in Canaan. But it's not God's plan for marriage. God's plan for marriage we see from the very beginning is that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That there will be a husband and a wife and that the two of them will become one in life and one physically. And there is never to be a third person who enters into that union. That's not God's design. Socially acceptable in Canaan? Yes. God's design? Absolutely not. But when we really want something and we feel like we should have it at this point in our life, we're tempted to cut corners and do things that are wrong. I, years ago, met with a couple and they were broken and weeping in my office because as they were dating, they wanted to experience greater intimacy with each other. As a part of that desire for greater intimacy, they had given themselves up for each other physically. They'd entered into a sexual relationship within their dating relationship. And now they were deeply convicted about what they had done and said, what do, what do we do? We are heartbroken about what we have done before the Lord because we recognize it as wrong. They cut corners and now they were challenged by those corners that they had cut. I, I know a couple who live in another state and they wanted a certain kind of house for their family. They couldn't afford that kind of house. And so they went into debt beyond what they could afford in order to get into the kind of house that they wanted. Uh, they cut some corners along the way. And now as I talk to the husband, he says, our finances are a constant wedge between us in our marriage. Not only that, I go to church and I hear about these opportunities. We want to participate and partake in those opportunities. And we can't because of the position that we've put ourselves in. They cut corners. They took some shortcuts. That's challenging. Every time we cut corners, do things wrong and do things that aren't wise in order to bring blessings into our life that we think we should have, it has consequences. And we see those consequences in Abram's household in the next verses. Look at this. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. <laughs> I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord's judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled. What a mess. Right? What a disaster in this house. The consequences of the shortcuts that they have taken here. Hagar begins to mistreat her mistress, Sarai. In this situation, Sarai is her master. But now in their social standing, Hagar has gone over her master because she's now born a child. And born a child for Sarai's husband which is producing a tremendous amount of conflict in the home. Sarah looks at Abram and says, this is on you. And Abram's ridiculously passive in this entire passage, isn't he? 
Oh, you want me to sleep with your servant? Okay. What? Oh, oh, you're having problems? Oh, well, okay. I hope you work it out. Hope that all gets resolved. What? And so then Sarah is like, oh, you're going to mistreat me? I'm going to mistreat you double. Mistreats Hagar so bad that Hagar leaves. And I believe that she leaves because she thought her life and the baby's life were in danger. She is going to run by herself as a pregnant woman out into the barren wilderness. And the only explanation I can think of for why she would do that is because she thought her life and the life of her baby were in danger in, within this household. What a mess. Anytime we cut corners and do what is wrong or do what is foolish in order to bring these blessings that we think we should have into our life, it has consequences. And the consequences of Genesis 16 aren't just within this house, are they? Haven't they made a mess of all of human history? The consequences of what takes place in these tents in Genesis 16 has done damage to human relationships throughout all of human history, has it not? Because... Spoiler alert, Abram and Sarah, they're going to have a son whose name is Isaac, who's going to have a son named Jacob or Israel. And the people of Israel are going to come from this line. Hagar is going to give birth to a son and his name's going to be Ishmael. And the Arab people are going to come from that line. And for 4,000 years, the people of Israel and the Arab people are going to fight and battle with one another over this promised land of blessing and the blessings that come with it. And it isn't just going to affect them. The entire world is going to be impacted by this ongoing conflict for 4,000 years. Because when we cut corners, it has consequences. When we cut corners, there's consequences. I have a friend who goes to a church and they wanted a a bigger ministry and more impact. They knew that what the scripture called on them to do as they looked for their next lead pastor was to find a lead pastor who was filled with integrity, to find a lead pastor who was filled with the Spirit, to find a lead pastor who loved to teach the whole counsel of God to people and whose life was a pursuit of Jesus. But they also knew The fastest way to increase your size and impact was to find a pastor who was highly entertaining, to find a pastor who was visionary. And so they cut some corners and they brought a lead pastor in who was dynamic and charismatic, but a little bit short in some of the character areas and the areas of integrity. Three years after they brought him in, the church had doubled in size. He was charismatic and dynamic as a speaker. He was visionary and produced tremendous systems. Six years after they brought him in, the church had split. The pastor had been asked to leave. The church had almost died because he lacked integrity in his dealings, because he treated people poorly. The church cut corners. The pastor they brought in cut corners. And there were consequences for that. Anytime we cut corners, there are consequences. I have a friend who so badly wanted to marry a godly woman. And as he moved through the years in his life, he found himself in his 30s. And as he looked around, he began to panic a little bit about this. And he started to date a woman who would check Christian on a box in a survey but was not running after God, was not pursuing Jesus in her daily life. 
We talked about his misgivings about entering into this relationship and moving forward with this relationship. But deep in his heart, he said, who else is there at this point? And he decided to cut corners and move forward into this marriage. And now as I talk to him, this marriage that he wanted because it was going to be a blessing is pain and hardship for him as he pursues the Lord by himself without his spouse. He wanted something. He thought he should have it by this point in life. And he cut corners. And there are consequences when we cut corners. I've cut corners more times than I can possibly remember here. And I'll tell you that whenever I've cut corners and done things wrong, cut corners and done things that are foolish, there have been consequences. Those consequences aren't always external, but they are always internal. There is always damage done to my soul, damage done to my relationship with God, damage done to my character when I cut corners like this. Anyone else? Please notice, this is so important, that the consequences were not the removal of the gift. Notice that? For Abraham and Sarah, the consequences were not the removal of the gift. Actually, in most of the illustrations I shared, they got exactly what they were looking for. And so often in these situations where we cut corners, God allows us to have exactly what we were looking for And that thing that we thought was going to be ultimate blessing turns out not to be blessing at all. And that's precisely what happens with Abram and Sarai. And that's what happens in our lives. So often God gives us exactly what we're pursuing. And it turns out not to be the blessing that we thought that it was going to be. There are always consequences for cutting corners. And Hagar experiences consequences for her own sin in this passage. What does Hagar do in this passage? She has some incredibly difficult and challenging circumstances thrust upon her. How does she handle that? She chooses a bad attitude and bad action in response to that situation she's been put in. Anyone ever done that? This has happened to me all the time. I'm put in a situation, right? Not necessarily by my own choosing, but put in a situation where everything around me is a challenge or is hard. And how do I respond to it? I've responded by bad attitude and bad actions that make the whole situation worse. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Oh, you are. Oh, (laughs) No, no. If it's true, it's true. That's fine. I'll be all right. Agar chooses bad attitude, bad actions in light of the bad circumstances that she has been put in. She, she mistreats Sarai. And as she mistreats Sarai, Sarah begins to mistreat her. There's this entire dysfunction going on within the home. And she says, I got to get out of here. And she runs away. More specifically, she runs home. Where is she headed? She's headed back to her home. She is Hagar the Egyptian. She's headed back to Egypt. She makes it 70 miles on her path back to Egypt. Now I want you to picture this. She is a woman, pregnant, traveling by herself in a land that last week we saw was violent and dangerous. 
She has no way to provide shelter for herself. She has no way to provide food for herself. She has run out and she is traveling as a pregnant woman back to Egypt through this barren wilderness. And she arrives at this water fountain. And when she's there getting some water, a mysterious visitor comes and sees her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He is the angel or messenger of the Lord. And this messenger of the Lord has a message for her. What is that message? And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. How excited do you suppose she is about this message? Things were bad enough there. I ran out into the wilderness without knowing if I would live. And now you are telling me, go back and submit. What? She probably wasn't real excited about this. But the messenger has a promise for her, a promise about her son. Look at this. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. This promise has encouragement and challenge in it, doesn't it? The encouragement is Hagar is out here in the wilderness by herself. She has no idea if she's going to live. She has no idea if this child within her is going to live. And what does the messenger of the Lord tell her? Yes, he's going to live. He's going to live and his name's going to be Ishmael. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a whole lot of offspring here. What a blessing. What an announcement. What a promise. But he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Isn't that an exciting pronouncement? You want your son uh, proclaimed to be a wild donkey? He's going to be in conflict with everyone around him. So there is a promise and a challenge here for Hagar as she hears this. In response to this message, look at what she says. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar is the only one in the entire Old Testament who supplies a name for God. A name that God takes upon himself because it is true and it is an accurate description of who he is. What is that name? In the Hebrew, it is Elroi, the God who sees and looks after you. The God who sees and looks after you. What does that mean that God is Elroi? At first, when I, I thought he's the God who sees, I thought of that song, be careful little hands what you touch or be careful little eyes what you see, right? The father up above is looking down in love, so be careful. God sees everything, so you better be careful about what you do. But that's not really the spirit of Elroi. Elroi isn't about, oh, God sees you, so be careful. There, there's an element of truth to that. But Elroi is about, God sees you, 
no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how discouraged you are, no matter how much hurt or hardship you're going through, God sees you and he looks after you. He's your ultimate protector, your ultimate provider. Just think about what Hagar has been through at this point. She has to be asking, does anyone see me? Does anyone care? My mistress commanded me to sleep with this 86-year-old man. Woohoo! <laughs> and because in our household we all live in tents, everybody knows what's happened. Everybody knows what has gone on here. There's no secret here. And then, once everybody knows what has gone on, my mistress wishes that I'd never gotten pregnant with this child she so desperately wanted in the first place. I'm arguing with her, she's fighting with me, things get bad enough, I'm out here wandering in the wilderness by myself. I don't know if I'm going to live, I don't know if my child's going to live, I don't know where I'm going. Does anyone see me? Does anyone care? Is there anyone who will look after me? And it is in that situation that she meets El Royi, the God who sees and looks after, the God who cares, the God who will protect, and the God who will provide. How, how do we avoid cutting corners the way that Abram and Sarah cut corners here? I think the answer to that is to have full faith that El Roy is with you. When we fully believe that El Roy, the God who sees and is going to care for us and look after us, is with us, it keeps us from feeling like we got to do this on our own. Look at Abram and Sarai, as we read this passage, never mention God. They never pray. There's not a hint of faith by them anywhere within this passage. And as the New Testament book of Galatians makes very clear, God is not involved in this. This is a child born of flesh and human effort, Galatians says. God, God's not involved here. What would have made a difference in Abram and Sarah's life if they would have recognized God as Elroy? He's the God who sees. He's the God who's going to look after you. He made this promise. He's going to bring it about to fulfillment. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you are in the place where Hagar was. And you are being mistreated, maybe by those close to you. You are wandering and you are lonely in life. Maybe you're in the place of Abram and Sarai and you thought there would be blessings here and they're not there and you're saying, God, what's going on with my life? Why are there these challenges? Why are there these hardships? What is going on? Maybe that's the place where you are today. What God's Spirit wants to say to you today is that you have trusted in El Roy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have trusted in El Roy, the God who sees you who cares about you, and who's going to look after you. That, that, that's your God. He sees you. He cares about you. He's going to look after you. If you're here today and you're lonely, you're hurting, you're challenged, then the body of believers that God has assembled around you today say that we want to play our role in this. We see you. We want to care about you. We, we want to look after you. El Roy 
sees you, cares about you, and looks after you, and he calls us as his body to do the same. I, I want to encourage all of you right now as we think about Elroy to just bow your heads with me. And would you take a moment and prayerfully think through the God who sees and the impact that makes on your life. Where do you need to have full faith in the God who sees? In the God who cares? In the God who will look after you? Where do you in faith need to trust fully in his provision and his protection? This morning, you may be in a place where you need to say, God, I know you are the God who sees and looks after me in my loneliness. God, I know, I know you are the God who sees and looks after me in my hurt. God, I have full faith. You're the God who sees and looks after my marriage. God, I know you are the God who sees and looks after my children. God, I know, I know you are the God who sees and looks after me so that as I pursue the kingdom of God, you will make sure that all of my needs are provided for. He's the God who sees and looks after you. Today, as we enter into a time around the Lord's Supper, I want us to recognize that we are worshiping the God who sees us and looks after us when we go to this table. That the ultimate expression of God seeing you, the ultimate expression of his care for you and his looking after you is at the cross where he says, I, I see you. I see that you have no help for yourself. I see that you are lost in your sins and I care for you. I look after you and I've sent my son in order to take that punishment so that you can be set free. As we go to this table today, I want to encourage you to keep Elroy in mind. Keep in mind the God who sees you this morning and who has cared for you and looked after you. And let's continue to worship him. As we sing this next song, you can make your way to the tables around and there's the bread and the cup, the elements. You can bring those back to your seat and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a few minutes.